0: hello welcome to another episode before we get started i want to give a shout out to the newest patrons we're almost to a hundred patrons thank you all so much shout out to walter a rodriguez knowledge nebula joseph Garad, daniela scafati vibo Hom, ben sergeant origins unknown dylan meredith tony lucero Jason Pitts, Jennifer Franklin, Troy Hollywell, and Aaron. Thank you all so much for signing up for the Patreon. Really appreciate it. And as always, make sure to follow the show on social media at The One One Podcast everywhere. I just got pinged on YouTube this this week, so I wasn't able to post. But if you follow the Instagram, I did make a Facebook as well. All the links to the show are in the description. Make sure to check that out and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the Juan on Juan podcast. If you're enjoying the show, consider signing up for the Patreon. There you get ad free content, early access, exclusive episodes, and monthly supporter hangouts. You can find it at patreon.com slash the Juan on Juan podcast. If you don't like the subscription based models, there are other ways of supporting the show that are linked in the description. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode.
1: Let's talk about it. It's an idea that first starts to formulate, I think, in the 80s, with a literary critic named Harold Bloom, who wrote a book called The American Religion. It was a huge hit It was very notorious. He said that American religion, including Christianity, is not Christianity. He says that, in fact, American religion is closer to Persian religion, and he calls it American Orphism. He also calls the New Age California Orphism, which I love that title think it's great. I'm not sure it's a good description, but it's wonderful. And so Bloom had this idea that there's this thing called this American religion. And he didn't really give it the name American metaphysical religion, although he may have mentioned something along those lines. And he said, this thing is not what people think it is. And it's very strong. And America is, is deeply into this religion, but they think that they're Christian but they're not. They're this other thing. And then others kind of picked up on this. And then the the really watershed moment was a book by a scholar named Catherine Albanese called A Republic of Mind and Spirit. And this really established this field of study. And there are more writers in this area. He's a wonderful academic who, is has become known around the world because he exemplifies this idea that is now gaining traction which is it is not on us to judge if these things are true or valuable as academics it's on us to study them and present them as accurately as we can to take all the information that's hidden away and bring it out so that people can study it and decide for themselves.
0: Welcome back to another episode of the one-on-one podcast. I'm your host as always, Juan. And make sure to follow me on social media at the one-on-one podcast on all social media platforms, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you know where to find me. My website is the one on podcast.com. And today I've been waiting for this interview for a while now. And it seems like this gentleman went from only being on one podcast that I listened to like three or four times. And I think the guy's. Podcast is the modern hermeticist or something like that. I think that's the first one that you did.
1: Thoth Hermes.
0: Thoth Hermes. Yes, yes. I'm sorry. The modern hermit is another guy. Thoth Thoth Hermes. Shout out to that guy. I don't know him, but I have listened to his show. Great show. And that's where I listened to you for the first time, Ronnie. And I talked about you on the show before because I didn't think the interview was ever going to happen. Because obviously the book you were writing was coming out. And I talked to Tamara first, and she was like, hey, I know you want to talk about manly, but I got somebody better for you. And then she had mentioned your name. I didn't know who you were until I looked you up. And here we are, Ronnie. Welcome to the show. I'm very excited for this. How you doing today, man?
1: I'm good. I'm happy to be here.
0: And for those that haven't heard of you, where can they find your work on? Do you have a website? And I know we're going to be talking about your book here, The American Metaphysical Religion. Beautiful cover. By inner traditions, of course, and this is a big boy, so <laughs> it's just jam-packed, full of a whole bunch of different things that we might cover today. Mitch Harowitz gave it an endorsement, and very, very well done, Ronnie. Well, where Thank can people you. find you, or they want to look you up, or do you have a website? I
1: always tell people uh, just go to your favorite search engine and look up Ronnie Pontiac. And there's music from my band, Lucid Nation. There's documentary films that I've worked on. There's writing. Uh, I do a weekly astrology report on Medium, and I'm on Instagram, and so just uh, any search engine will lead you to something interesting. I hope.
0: Awesome, and Ronnie, can you you have an interesting history? Obviously, what caught my eye was your involvement involvement with Manly P. Hall, and I just want to say that your the way that you carry yourself and the way you speak. You've had some practice. You have some experience. You're a natural, and it reminds me a lot of Manly because I've listened to hours and hours and hours of Manly P. Hall. I have a uh, golden anniversary edition, I think it is, of That's the, a beauty, yeah. you know, with the full color plates and everything, the Secret Teachings of All Ages. And I call him Daddy Manly P. Hall because he, I've I've learned so much from him. And I actually purchased, I got it this week, the the revision. Ooh, the tarot nice. and Ronnie I had actually, <laughs> this is how hardcore of a fan I am. I had actually taken the art AI enhanced it and I printed out my own hall nap tarot deck. I had printed my own and then they, they made the revision. Cause I wasn't going to pay like $700 for an original 1929 copy. And I was like, I'm not even going to want to touch it. So when they yeah. came out with the revision, I was, I jumped on and I actually got them. This week, so nice.
1: Congratulations!
0: Thank you. They
1: did a beautiful job on it.
0: Yes, they did. And again, I'm a, I'm a fan of anything Manly P Hall. But can you tell us a little bit about you, Ronnie, and and really what started you on this esotericism, occultism kick? Because I know you have an interesting background. You were kind of like a bad boy at first, and then you stumbled across Manly P Hall.
1: Uh, I was an only child raised by war survivors who were atheists, and I had the classic get my ass kicked at school every day childhood. Didn't really feel any social contract by the time I hit my teenage years. I I didn't think that I owed society anything because I felt that all society had given me was an ass kicking. So as I got into my teens, I became a front person for a nihilist band that was very I guess we were borderline fascist, really. i mean our our audience was pretty fascist oriented, and i was I was into various kinds of uh, mayhem and crime, small petty thefts and such things, and was really headed somewhere bad. i I had a strong biker following, for example, from my band. There was a lot of violence around it, and I was very, very blessed that nothing bad happened to anyone, including me, given what was going on around me at the time. Uh, The two things that changed my life. First, I fell in love when uh, Tamara asked me for help when she was in trouble outside a club and I came to her rescue and it turned out to be the love of my life that I rescued. She rescued me, really. And then uh, when I was with her, uh, I'd always had some interest in the metaphysical and the occult, but in a very kind of dark and self-serving way. So I began with... Crowley, Austin Spare, um, William Gray's Tree of Evil. I couldn't find anything really evil enough for me. I I thought the Satanic Bible was kind of trite and goofy, and I wanted something deeply evil from which I could claim power and then use this in my band. That was about the extent of my interest. I had seen when I was a kid a book called Atlantis, Mother of Empires, and I'd I'd always wanted it, but at the time, it's a big big book and I i wanted to shoplift it but it was far too large to be able to do that with so I had a birthday and my parents uh, optimistically gave me money for a haircut and I took it instead of the Bodhi Tree Bookstore to the used branch and I was looking for my, uh, Atlantis Mother of Empires but what I found instead was the secret teachings of all ages. It was a 6th edition which was a reduced size tome But it was still a tome the plates were black and white it was very it looked to me like it was from another century and it just seemed like the perfect book for aspiring wizards or something and i put it on layaway eventually i paid for it because even then it was a little above my price range and when i took it home i read it a chapter at a time and it just blew my mind it just opened up this this incredible vista of people who devoted themselves to exploring the frontiers of consciousness and spirituality and who had in fact risked their lives in an effort to provide this information for all of us for posterity and so manly hall in this book as you know covers all these different subjects and it was as if no part of life was left untouched by this vision uh, this esoteric vision and the incredible art also was amazing. The Robert Flood stuff and so many other things. And so, uh, I would read a chapter and then go out and, and tell my girlfriend about it. Oh my God, did you know that? And so she would be her mind was blown. So I brought this up to a friend of mine who was kind of into spiritual stuff. Her and her whole family were getting ready to move to Virginia Beach because they were into Edgar Casey and they were convinced that California was about to go into the sea. And they really scared me into also wanting to leave. And I I was kind of obsessed with it. I told her about the book and she shocked me by saying that he was still alive and that he was lecturing every week, not far from where I lived. Well, I stalled for a while because I, I, knowing who I was, I didn't really want to go there and I didn't want him to see me and such. I just thought they don't want me there. That's, that's for sure. I'm not worthy. And Eventually she prevailed upon me after a couple of months to to go down there. And so we went to this lecture. She describes it beautifully in her book. It's just like a, like reentering the scene. And as I sat there, he's giving this lecture and he looks right at me and he says, people who have irrational fears of earthquakes because they have guilt over how they've been living their lives. And I thought, whoa, okay, what just happened here? Now, later when I worked for him, I found out that he did that often. And even more impressive, I found out that he was not capable of seeing me. At that point in his life, his his vision was quite blurry. So how he, he managed to look at the right person at the right time, some people call it channeling, some people say he's a Taoist master, some call it synchronicities, but they they were... I found that synchronicity happened around him a great deal. So... I was so impressed by him and just what he had to say and the fact that he had done that. And by the people who were there, the conversations they were having after the lecture, how, how kind everybody was and how they were talking about such deep and inspiring subjects I'd never heard about before. So I wanted to volunteer. We both did. We went down there the follow- the next day, Monday, and we tried to volunteer. They wanted They wanted my girlfriend because she had office skills but they didn't know what to do with me. They didn't need me. and They did ask me, though, if I had any knowledge of languages. I said that I'd grown up in a family that spoke uh, several European languages, but that was about it. Apparently, that was enough because the next day I got a phone call saying that Manley Hall wanted to meet me in his office the following day. Well, that was a thrill, but also a little intimidating. I went down there. And uh, they led me to his office and the the women who ran the place, there were four of them, these older women who were really fierce and they were just kind of glaring at me. Who is this kid? And he was sitting there smiling, just really sweet man, asked me to sit down and make myself miserable. And uh, he had a big stack of paper in front of him. And he said, "Uh, this is the galley of my alchemical bibliography. And he pushed it toward me and said, I want you to edit it under my direction and i said i don't know what a galley is i don't know anything about alchemy and i don't know what a bibliography is i i I think you've mistaken me for someone else i don't really have a good education and he said i understand that you have some knowledge of languages and that's really what's required here and i'm sure you'll be fine I'll, i'll i'll make sure that you know what to do I tried to talk him out of it, but he insisted. And so I picked up the paperwork and I started on my way out the library. And the vice president of the place, Pat Irvin, she must have run around the office going out the other door. And she stopped me before I could leave the library and said, give me that paperwork. And I was relieved. I said, sure, you're right. I'm not the guy for this. And I gave it back to her. When I got home, there was another call, and it was, it was Mr. Hall's secretary, and she said, he wants to see you in his office tomorrow morning, first thing. So I got down there first thing in the morning, and it was just him this time. And he still had the alchemical biblio there, and he pushed it in front of me again, and he said, from now on, you take orders only from me. And if anybody tells you anything that contradicts what I tell you, you just come back to me. I will show you what to do every morning. We will have lunch in the vault and I will introduce you to the books that you're working on and you can answer, uh, ask questions and I'll answer them for you. And, and then in the evening, before we, we quit for the day in the afternoon, we will look over your work and make sure that it's all appropriate and that it was well done. Well, I, I mean, it's still, it's still just, I, I can't believe it happened even now. It, it was something uh, beyond just dropped into my life like the, like this, this amazing redemption. And so I started working for him and, and it was amazing. He, uh, I became also his screener. I became his designated substitute lecturer and I became friends with him and he and Tamara became friends. And then he actually married Tamara and I in his backyard after having chosen the day with his wife astrologically and kind of insisting on it, like we weren't really into getting married. And, but he, he really was, you, need, you two need to be married. And we're going to pick the day and we're going to do all this. So we were sort of, we had grandparents all of a sudden. And neither of us had had grandparents, really. So it was, it was really incredible. And he was a, a very sweet, very wise man. He did not like to talk about uh, esoteric subjects out of the office. He, he liked to tell jokes but his jokes would often have meaning. So you would, you would be laughing, but then you would realize he had just sent you a message. And he, he would be happy to answer any questions I had about esoteric subjects. But to give you another synchronicity that I haven't discussed yet, but Tamara talks about in her book, an amazing moment, but very exa- a good example of the kind of thing that, that used to happen. So he allowed me to borrow books from the library and... And that in itself was something because I'd been a thief and I I have to tell you, there were books in there that I wanted bad, but, and he actually told me a joke in the midst of this, this struggle I was in because I wasn't going to betray somebody who'd been so kind to me. And he told me a joke that just literally said, I know what's going on and, and I'm going to trust you. And, and that after telling me the joke, he said, and you can take home any book you want as long as you bring it back, just keep it, you know, as long as you need it. So, I started to do that. and Eventually I became the person who would go around the library and find books that, that were too valuable not to be involved because over the years they had lost touch with the value of some of these items that were still out there for anybody to just take and walk out with because there was no supervision really in those days. And so one book I took was about Apollonius of Tyana and I was very interested in him and one of the stories told about him was that there was a riot, and Apollonius was able to still that riot by simply standing there. His presence, his tranquility, and just his gravity was so great that that it's very it's funny because it reminds me of the story in Homer of Achilles when Patroclus is killed and uh, Achilles finds out about it. He shows up on the battlefield naked. And he lets out this blood-curdling scream. And Homer describes how one by one, the Greeks and the Trojans all turn and see him and, and become silent until the entire battle is still and silent. And they're all looking at Achilles. And it reminded me of the story of Apollonius. But I thought, this has got to be bull. I mean, my wife and I were talking about it. And we, we said, one guy is going to stand in the middle of a riot. And the riot's going to stop. No. That doesn't make sense. So I said, you know what? I'm going to talk to him about this. Well, the next day we went in there and I said, I would like to talk to you about this book about Apollonius." He said, sure. Why don't we talk about it over dinner? He would sometimes take us out to his favorite restaurant. So we went to this restaurant, Michael's in Las Vegas, and I was ready to talk to him about it. And we're standing outside in line and there's this irate man in front of us. He's, really pissed at his wife for some reason. She's trying to be cool. Usually he didn't have to stand in line at this restaurant because they knew him and they would always bring him in. But at this time, this night, they couldn't bring him in. And so he was standing there. And she saw, wow, this old man with a cane is out here. And she tried to make sure that she wasn't in his way. And she kind of got in her husband's way. And he got even more angry. And then I watched him get in between like he didn't do anything in a way it was the most it was like tai chi he he, he's looking way past anything going on right by him it seems like he's not even paying attention but he's taking these small steps and he's he's getting in the way of this man so he can't get at his wife now i'm i'm ready to fight I, i'm thinking this something's going to happen because this guy's red-faced And he, sure enough, turns around and starts screaming at Mr. Hall. I mean, just just looks up in his face and just starts screaming at him. Get out of the way, you, you know, effing old man. And he didn't, Mr. Hall didn't do anything. He just, again, was looking, might have been looking just at a beautiful scene somewhere. He, He was so serene. And I watched this guy all of a sudden be overcome by shame and remorse. And he apologized to everyone. And he very tenderly took his wife by the hand and, and they left. So I never even asked him about Apollonius because I, I felt like I had just seen a, a small demonstration of the principle. And I'm not saying that he had, he deliberately attracted this, but these are the kinds of synchronicities that often happened when I was with him. And other people have mentioned that as well. So that's how I got started on all of this. And this book would not have been written if it weren't for him. It started, this book literally started in his vault when I found something called the Platonist and I was so mystified by it. It was a newspaper. It was published around the time of the OK Corral on what was then the Western frontier near, near St. Louis, Missouri. And I couldn't imagine who did this. And then even weirder, when I opened it up, Abner Doubleday of baseball fame, a, a famous Civil War general. He fired the first shot at Fort Sumter for the Union. He had a translation of Alephus Levi's Transcendental Magic in this thing. So I was shocked. You know, this was not the America that I've been taught about. And I asked Mr. Hall about it, and they didn't know much about the Platonist. There was very little information available at that time. So that began decades of research for me.
0: And Ronnie, how old were you at the time when you first met him?
1: 19 or 20, something like that.
0: And one of the things that's always stood out to me that, I, that I've that i talked about before was, and you mentioned it on that first interview that you did. And mm-hmm. again, I don't know if you can elaborate on it or not, but you said something really, that really piqued my interest for some reason. You said that Manly P. Hall had fired the former bibliographer because he wouldn't not reference bodily fluids in the alchemical bibliography. Do you remember saying that?
1: Yes, that's correct. That, that's that is, I think, what happened. Um, so he did a wonderful job, uh, Gilbert Bennett, on on this, or is it Bennett Gilbert? Hmm. So whichever one it was, Gilbert did a fantastic job on the bibliography, in my opinion, and. But he was a scholar and he felt that the information about bodily fluids contained in these alchemical recipes was something that scholars would want to know about. And so he argued extensively with Mr. Hall about this. And Mr. Hall was just he just did not want those kind of descriptions in the book, partly, I think, because he felt that it was too dangerous to to give these recipes in, in an unalloyed form to people that might run with them. And he'd seen problems with that kind of behavior in the past because he was somebody that many people came to when they were in trouble, whether it was because of spiritualism or ceremonial magic or alchemy went wrong. Often he was sort of the, the, the last hope and they would come try to see him. That's part of my job as a screener and later Tamara's job as a screener was to read the letters, talk to people on the phone. And sometimes, have personal meetings to see if these were people that he he would be able to help. We would come back and report, and then he would say yes, I will meet this person, or no. And so he he was um, also aware that his following were were sort of wholesome, uh, mid middle class American people for the most part, and that they probably would not like to find those bodily fluids in a book they might buy just because it was his collection <laughs> yeah. and he didn't want to offend anybody he was always very careful about that and so i do think that's why why i showed up or why why he he put me in that position and uh if if gilbert had had gone ahead and removed the stuff i never would have had the opportunity so i'm grateful that gilbert was such a good scholar and that that he he actually lost the job rather than uh, in some way, degrade what he thought was the scholarship of his work on that bibliography. But that opened a, a door for me that completely changed my life.
0: Yeah, that's that's really crazy. I mean, yeah, if, if for him not following orders, you would have never even we wouldn't be here right now. I mean, essentially. Right. Yeah. And do you feel you can again? You can answer this if you want or not. But were you initiated in any sort of way, Ronnie, with with him? Do you? Feel that was Manly using any occult art or anything of that sort? Because you, because when you read his first, the All Seeing Eye, his journals, you see the switch of before he goes out, and he talks about being initiated. He he goes out and to visit these different areas around the world to learn firsthand about these. Mystery schools, for lack of a better term. But do you feel that he used any of this in his real life? Because, and this is something I want to talk to you about, because when I was first learning about Manly P. Hall, I would always say, well, he's got to be channeling this information. There's no way that this man can sit in front of a crowd for two hours. And the way he carries his conversation, his words, the rhetoric that is involved with his... And the knowledge that he's putting out, without without skipping a beat, this dude's got to be channeling. And then you start learning about a mind palace, and you start learning about all these other memory techniques. And you okay? Well, maybe it's not all supernatural, but I feel like with Manly, there's something enigmatic about him, something so mysterious. And I've read the it's called the Man of Mysteries. I don't, I personally don't like that biography, but it's. I think one of the only ones that's out there, right? The, the... Yeah, yeah. And again, there's the rumors about him and all these things. And I've heard you mention that people wanted to photograph him naked as well in, in the nude, which is...
1: He got a lot of strange requests for sure, yeah.
0: <laughs> but do you... And you can answer it if you want. If not, he was using some sort of technique or something. Because you're saying when he would look at people, he would sense the aura and he was looking through right through the guy at the restaurant or he was there, but not a hundred percent there.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I, I, uh, for me, the, my practice around him and he did, he taught me a couple simple things. He taught me the Pythagorean recollection, which is a, a simple technique of when you go to sleep at night, you go backwards through your day and you assess what you did and what you might've done better and how you might've, have. Uh, done something different that might have had an even better result a very useful technique for self-awareness and and for self-development he i had weird dreams i don't want to say what that what it was i I don't know if it was just me or but i had dreams where he appeared and in in sort of these these light displays and and something was being transmitted and it was it was a, a very overpowering experience, but I don't know if that, that wasn't just my own psyche illustrating how I felt about being in his presence. And, and when I knew him, not certainly the early Manly Hall was much more of an occultist and much more interested in the occult, much more willing to talk about it and to write about it than he was later in life. Part of the reason for that, I believe, is because he did come to see some of the damage that was caused to people who perhaps had, had pre-existing psychological conditions or traumas and who then went into one or another spiritual path and had these problems amplified into some kind of crisis. And I think he realized, you know, a lot of this initiate stuff and a lot of the occult stuff can easily unbalance people who are already struggling. Also, I believe Marie Hall was a big change for him. She, she described to Tamara and I once... At their house, about how when she met him, he was living in this weird, dark house probably the Frank Lloyd Wright house that was in Blade Runner. He did live in there for a while. And he had this, she said, he had this, as she put it, a dwarf manservant who seemed sinister. And he always had these sinister parties and he had that had uh, swamis and psychic people. And she, she didn't approve of any of it. And they had blackout curtains in the house, and they would they would leave it dark during the day. And she told us, she said, I went in there and I opened up all those curtains and let the sun in and gave him good German breakfasts. And she turned, she really turned him away from the the glamour of the occult into this more, uh, very steady, kind of lifestyle. And when I knew him near the end of his life, in his eighties, I. I would say that what he reminded me of the most was a Taoist master. He was really into Buddhism and Taoism at that time in his life. And he had the kind of presence of a Taoist master. His room, his office had this tranquility in it, this, this vibe. I don't know how to describe it, but it was, it was something that you walked shui. into. And you, yeah. It was a temple. And when you walked into it, you felt decades of, of what was going on in there. And there was about him a very tranquil presence. And so I think that that maybe, and this is just my theory, and I certainly don't say it's the only way to look at it, maybe what was happening there was that he was just so in the flow of the Tao, or what what Aliphas Levi calls uh, rest in nature, to to rest in nature with a capital N, and I, I feel that he, I think that's why I got in there. I think because when he knew he needed somebody else, he put the word out. I need somebody who knows things about languages. I popped in there and they said, Oh, what about this guy? And he said, Hey, if this is if This is what washed up when I needed it. Then I'm going to give this a shot. And I, I saw him do that kind of thing with other people. So my feeling is that, that what he had was that, that deep, Interconnection with with the, the the current of things, with with the way that that life flows, and that gave him a depth that allowed him to do things like like silence somebody who was irate or look at somebody in an audience and say just what they needed to hear. If you've ever been in that kind of a state, sometimes when we we do creative work, we when we when I was in a riot girl band, we used to do zines. And, and the zines would fall together in the most inexplicable ways. You would be doing something about a certain subject, and it seemed like anything you touched. All right. Yeah. Nice. I'd like a copy of that.
0: Yeah, I'd love to send you a copy. And I, have a, I also have a comic book, too. The, this is my, I call it a journal. It's inspired by the all-seeing eye, but it is, it's a zine. <laughs>
1: you know I love that. Yeah, well, zines, zines they were the best. So that's where I first experienced this, really, that that sense of how everything falls together. Now, this book was like that. It, it seemed like everything that I'd be working on, suddenly I couldn't sign on anywhere without something relating to the book popping out that I could use. And what are those experiences? You know, No one's really sure. They've been described as guidance system. Uh, Jungians talk about synchronicity to explain it but we don't really know what what is happening there i always, always think of it as just you're in the right flow you're you're doing what you should be doing at at that time and the universe is supporting you in what you're doing
0: yeah i always talk about how art is magic and art attracts synchronicity in a way mm-hmm. and whenever i put even the having this podcast putting it out in the ether it does create an alchemical reaction and and podcasters or any artists really, we are all the modern alchemists, right? We are the ones transmuting people's ideas and thoughts real time. As people are listening to this, they're having revelations that they wouldn't have otherwise had unless we were on here talking, you and I, and us talking, I go back to Al Kindi with everything is a ray of light and the way it interacts. That's reality that we perceive. And I actually came across so you said, what did he say about the little man at Manly P. Hall's house? He said that it was a, the, the, oh,
1: the dwarf man servant, the sinister dwarf man
0: He had a dwarf that. servant. Really?
1: That's what she said. This is Marie Hall.
0: Wow. Okay. So I am known a little bit for, I've coined myself the home oncologist and I've Dove pretty deep into the subject of the homunculus. Now, I came across you one night, right? As I was going into the the esoteric corners and occulted corners of the internet. And I came across an article that you wrote about the unobstructed secret of the golden flower. Ronnie Pontiac, September 30th, 2014. Do you remember writing that? Yeah. It's for the reality realitysandwich.com and... You keep mentioning Taoism, which is is really an interesting branch of alchemy. It's one of the, one of the more interesting ones. And I recently got done reading Peter Lavenda's Stay Away to Heaven, Chinese alchemists, Jewish Kabbalist, and the art of Spiritual Transformation. And to tie it into the bodily fluid thing where these Chinese alchemists would literally turn their saliva into some sort of talisman by sitting there and what does he call it he calls it sipping from right either the the big dip or the little dip or whatever it was and they become themselves this alchemical catalyst well this little manservant is making me think of the little golden man that the Taoists would create with quite the way right the quietly you kept mentioning the way well that's exactly what it is and yeah, I just I, I've always I've been fascinated. I've been on this al- alchemy kick, and I know you talk about it in your book. And I know you, I've heard you talk about Rosicrucianism as well. And yeah, can we talk a little bit about alchemy and your because you got started with Manly P. Hall helping him out with an alchemical bibliography? Can you talk a little bit about alchemy with us today? And sure, Taoism <laughs> maybe.
1: Well, uh, as far as alchemy. I think the first important thing to understand about it is the spectrum of it. That you have on the one hand people whose motivation was more or less wealth or universal medicine for profit. And then you had on the other end of the spectrum, alchemists often influenced by by Rosicrucians that were trying to create the philosopher's stone to make gold for charity, to create the universal medicine, to be able to heal people for free and, and to just benefit humanity. And among them, the idea was that to be a great alchemist, you had to achieve a certain spiritual purity. It, only your own spiritual purity could bring out the spiritual purity of lead and, and make the process possible by which it turns to gold. So, of course, uh, mythology built up around this. It had a symbolic language, and there were alchemists who contended that many of the recipes were simply ways of discussing the kinds of things that you might find in Tibetan Buddhism regarding the, uh, the drops or the bindu points and the chakras and such, and that these were actually descriptions of etheric, if you want to call it that, operations. Others... Uh, took it very literally. And there's another difficulty, by the way, with alchemy, I'm sure you're aware of it, but but perhaps your listeners aren't, which is the nicknames of substances. So you run into something like, I don't know, widow's ashes or something like that, and you're thinking, my God, what is this? And then really that turns out to have been some sort of a strange herb or substance that had that nickname at the time. And so alchemy, although it became discredited, it it really was the the jumping off point that became chemistry and and the fact that it was discredited is i think a questionable perhaps it's a manifestation of scientism because there are still aspects of alchemy there are still practicing alchemists that have not fully been understood i think by science so for example One of the things that that I learned from uh, being around Manly Hall and being interested in alchemy was a tremendous respect for uh, herbal medicine and for tinctures and for other combinations of herbs and the, the impact they can have. And for the long, rich history of that kind of use, whether it be Paracelsus in Europe or it be the use of these herbs by indigenous tribes in America, there's this, Giant kind of history of medicine that's about the alchemical usage of herbs, purifying them, distilling them, uh, combining them in the right ways, going all the way for many practitioners to picking the herbs at the right time with the right astrological hour at the right ast- astrological t- uh, day and, and the right moon cycle. And it's you're deeply in touch with with the currents of the earth, and trying to capture this, the greatest potency that way. And so, in America, alchemy was, and I think remains to a degree uh, a, a major interest. And in the people don't realize that, for example, the son of John Winthrop, the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, the the Pilgrim of Pilgrims. His son, John Winthrop the Younger, was a full-blown alchemist, really into the Rosicrucians. He actually went to Europe searching for Rosicrucians. When he had his alchemical laboratory and his library, which contained many of John Dee's books, shipped to America, he had the crates marked with John D.'s uh, Monus Hieroglyphicus. And so this is... If you think about that, that that's shocking. I mean, we're talking about the governor of Pilgrim, Boston, and his son has got John Dee's alchemical symbol on his crates and is running around searching for Rosicrucians, is deeply into all kinds of esoteric studies, and ultimately branches off to become the first governor of Connecticut colony. and And there he's famous as a practicing alchemist, both for creating... Gold, ostensibly, and also for creating medicines and training these groups of women to diagnose and to dispense the medicines using different colored envelopes. And so alchemy existed at Harvard in the early days. Yale had had, not, had actually Yale had presidents who were not only alchemists, Yale had one president who had run into a Kabbalist who came to the colonies. So all that time ago, just this was a man who traveled around the world, just meeting different people. And he met somebody who became the president of Yale. And and he argued that every uh, college in America should teach Kabbalah. And so alchemy was actually at the at the heart of of American ambition, but also American spiritual practice in the early days. And I think that it conferred a certain kind of a, a sentiment or a, a certain theme of of consciousness to America about this this obsession with transmutation, this idea that if you just put the right things together, you'll get the gold. And I think most people take it in a rather lower level of, of I can be rich too, but America certainly seems to have, have gone in for the idea that that there's a medicine out there that doesn't involve uh, allopathic medicine, that, that it's, it's a spiritual medicine. There's a, a way to spiritually uh, adjust yourself so that you can be prosperous and you too can, can have great achievements. And I, These kind of alchemical goals, I think, suffuse American consciousness to this day. As for the Rosicrucians, I actually just um, i just got the news yesterday that Inner Traditions is going to buy a book of mine about uh, the Rosicrucians that I just finished.
0: I've heard you talk
2: about
1: the, it. Uh, the working title is um, Rosicrucian Origins in Context. And it's based on a lot of new research. And we looked, I look deeply into the rule of Rudolf II and then the whole debacle surrounding Frederick and Elizabeth in Bohemia, because I believe, along with other scholars, that this context was very important to the development of Rosicrucianism. Now, the ideas had already existed, many of them utopian ideas, apocalyptic ideas, a lot of, of, of it's based on Ficino and on Agrippa and on Campanella and Dante. And, and so there, there, those ideas were already floating around in esoteric circles, but something happens that, that changes the whole picture and this becomes this huge movement. And I, I, my take on it is from, from this research that when we're looking at, at the probable origins of the Rosicrucian manifestos, I, I think that we're looking at something that could really be compared to the beats or to even the hippies in the sixties. In other words, We've we've got college students who are being mentored by professors who are deeply into the esoteric. Everybody is caught up in this sense of imminent change and the idea that we can have a new era that's going to burst loose. Part of this is based on the arrival of comets and other astrological and astronomical observations. And so what happens is very likely Johann Valentin Andre, who his, even as a child was writing utopias and was writing satires and was was showing a lot of the interests that, that, that are throughout these manifestos, was probably creating something along with his friends and mentors that was a combination of things, a satire, a rousing call for political liberation, and a rousing call for spiritual liberation based on this new, which, this new, old natural philosophy. And so my feeling is that you had people all scattered throughout Europe who were thinking similar ideas and who were reading the same books. And so when the manifesto came out, they said, wow, I'm not alone. There's a bunch of us. I mean, this, this is it. And then all of a sudden there's an explosion of, of these pamphlets and books defending it and fighting it and saying it's wrong. And everybody, people saying, please, let me be a member. And, and then there's panic in Paris, right, when the placards go up. And there's, a Rosa, there's Rosicrucians loose in Paris. My God, they're the devil's Jesuits. We're all going to die. And I think what happened was that the people behind it, what they actually intended was to inspire us to to in our own individual corners of the world to have a universal reformation to to make the universal reformation happen where we are and instead of that happening although it did happen to a degree so for example John Winthrop the younger he reads the manifestos he's thrilled he goes looking for for rosicrucians he doesn't find any so he applies the principles of rosicrucianism in his own life and lives like a rosicrucian i would argue that that he is a rosicrucian for that reason that he is actually he, he may not have been initiated but he he was exemplifying rosicrucian principles in everything that he did and so but how for i believe for andre and for his his friends first there was the disappointment of wow, people are not reacting the way we thought they would. We've got people who are pounding on their chest saying, I should be a member, I should be a member. We have other people who are saying, this stuff is for the devil. Everybody's is being hysterical, and no one's doing what we thought they would do with it, which is quietly further the cause of knowledge, maybe you know, talk to each other quietly, not make this big mess out of it, and be obsessed with being initiated into the secret society with these powers. And so and then of course the other disappointment was the battle of white mountain because a lot of what was going on here and this is what my book is about is that people really misunderstood the marriage of frederick of the of the palatinate and and elizabeth stuart of england this was like the protestant holy marriage and it was celebrated in art, even Shakespeare and Francis Bacon and Inigo Jones. All these people created things for it. And, and people were saying this is the beginning of a new Protestant era because they all thought that there was no way that James would not support his daughter against the, the Habsburg Empire and the, and the Catholic Church. So when Frederick took the throne of Bohemia when he was offered it, which was a really bad decision, but he thought it was a calling from God. I think the people around him, I mean, Andre was at the court around that time. He was, in, he was hanging around Frederick's library. And I think that the people who saw this, the chemical wedding, for example, I think is partially inspired by the wedding of these two. And, and so they, were say, they wanted, to give your, readers an idea, I mean, your listeners an idea of what, what was really happening there, I think, they wanted a Protestant Holy Roman Emperor. Because the Habsburgs had pretty much made Holy Roman Emperor their own inherited position. And that was against the law of the empire. It was not to be an inherited position. And so also the, the kind of incestuous relationship between the Catholic Church and the Habsburgs, which had gone on for so long, was something that was found abhorrent by Protestants who thought that that this was a dictatorship essentially. And so Frederick came from this royal family that was so old that that one of his ancestors was a general of Charlemagne. And he had such noble blood that, and he was also an elector, meaning he was one of the people who would elect who the next emperor was. And one of the the two most powerful electors who would rule as interim emperors until the new emperor was actually enthroned. And so they thought that the German princes, the Dutch, the Swedes and the British would support him when he went to Bohemia and that there would be a war, but that the Protestants could win this war and then they could, they could finally break the power of the Pope. And at the same time, The Catholic Church and the newly, somewhat new order at the time, the Jesuits, were plotting The opposite, to, to eliminate Protestantism from all of Europe. And poor Frederick found himself in the middle of this nightmare and had a very, he somewhat romanticized in Francis Yates' book. Uh, Terence McKenna fa- famously held him up and said that we should all be freaks like him. I don't really think he was like that. I, I don't think he was as esoteric and as such a, a big freak, as it were, quote unquote, as people think. I, I, he was a, a very committed Christian he was like all the protestants in the in the higher class at that time interested in alchemy and the other esoteric arts the hermetica but he was really just fighting the protestant cause and when he was defeated so completely at the battle of white mountain it was such a humiliation because it was so immediate you know i mean he's king and then they used to call him the winter king because he only lasted through winter just one season And then they they threw him out. They took over not only Bohemia, but the Palatinate. And then the Thirty Years' War was off and running. And at that point, you can see in in A.E. Waite's Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross, he he says, wow, what happened around 1620? Because we have all these books and pamphlets about the Rosicrucians. It's like Rosicrucian mania. And then all of a sudden, it drops way down and it just kind of trickles away. Well, that's the Battle of White Mountain in 1620. And and he wasn't looking at the political dimensions. It took a little time. Francis Yates really broke that wide open and, and pointed out this is because all their political aspirations were crushed when Frederick was destroyed. And their their sense that they were at the forefront of this revolution that could not be held back was proven wrong. And they were all subject to years of plague and war. They turned their attention to America in a, in a, in a very real way, some of them, and some of the people that were involved in Rosicrucian ideas in England and Germany became uh, influential and the groups that, that, that spent the money to send the colonists to America. And there were people who went along in those early days who had Rosicrucian interests. And a good example of, um, one such person, not so much Rosicrucian, but, uh, Elizabeth Stewart had a son who became famous as Prince Rupert of the Rhine. He was this very dashing, brilliant soldier and artist and inventor. He had a lot of occult interests and he was infamous for supposedly having a magical dog and a magical monkey. And there were, I think the dog was the first animal ever featured in its own pamphlet. And, This was because the Catholics wrote a book about how it was this devil dog, and it it did all these evil things and it had all these evil powers. Like
0: Agrippa? I think it was Agrippa that had the the, the devil dog? Yes, exactly.
1: (laughs) And so so Rupert, uh, the Protestants wrote books defending the dog and and, uh, attributing different (laughs) powers to it. And in fact, at one time, Rupert's battalion all took a knee and, and toasted this dog with wine. And he, he was quite famous. So, But Rupert became very involved in in the Canadian colonies. And that's why we have... Um, yep, that's it, boy.
0: And this is one of the things that, for those interested, because this is the first time I'm hearing about this, really interesting. And for those interested, in your book, you do just this, because we're, we're talking about alchemy and how everything's coming together leading up to America and... In your book, you jump from person to person, these different people in history that some I've heard of, some I hadn't heard of. And it's like, there's all these nuggets that have led to the creation of what I I did not know this existed, the American metaphysical religion, which is an actual, from hearing you talk on other podcasts and interviews, that it's an actual field of study. And all that you're saying has led up to this climax and even if it's being acknowledged or not, that it is its own religion, we can't deny the fact. I mean, it's an alchem- it's almost like an alchemical chimera of some sorts that just came together and it's yeah. sentient. Well, let's, I mean, let's
1: talk about it for a minute. It's, it's, uh, it's an idea that, that first starts to formulate, I think, in the 80s with a literary critic named Harold Bloom who wrote a book called The American Religion. It was a huge hit that was very notorious. He said that American religion, including Christianity, is not Christianity. He says that in fact American religion is is closer to Persian religion, and he calls it American Orphism. He, he also calls the New Age uh California Orphism, which I love that title. I think that's great. I'm not sure it's a good description, but it, it's wonderful. And so Bloom had this idea that there's this thing called this American religion. And he didn't really give it the name American metaphysical religion, although he may have mentioned something along those lines. And he said, this thing is not what people think it is. And it's very strong. And America is is deeply into this religion, but they think that they're Christian, but they're not. They're this other thing. And then others kind of picked up on this. And then the, the really watershed moment was a book by a scholar named Catherine Albanese, wonderful writer, and a wonderful book I highly recommend to everyone, called "A Republic of Mind and Spirit." And this came out in the two thousands, and and this really established this field of study. And there are more uh, writers in this area who have, for instance, uh, Walter Honograph is a, is a. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. I'm sorry, Walter. Um, it, he's a a wonderful academic who. Is, has become known around the world because he exemplifies this idea that is now gaining traction, which is it is not on us to judge if these things are true or valuable. As academics, it's on us to study them and present them as accurately as we can to take all the information that's hidden away and bring it out so that people can study it and decide for themselves. That's a revolution that occurred in, especially beginning in the 2000s that unleashed unlimited amounts is what made my book possible because there were so many books and so many new studies out there about things that had already been studied but much of the information had not been available before because it was not academics who were going into these these archives and that without the training and the professional access uh writers like myself Uh, never could really achieve a full vision of what was going on. And another example of this is something that uh, Wouter just talked about in a post, uh, a book that he read by an Islamic scholar who was saying that there are still millions of manuscripts and just huge archives of material in the Islamic world that is a cult material, because so much of Islamic material is a cult. And it's waiting for scholars to come and and find what's in there. Who knows what's sitting in the Vatican? I mean, the the lost books that could be found in there, the lost books of Plato that are Mm -hmm. allegedly. and, And there's some amazing works that we have the names of, but we don't have copies of. They may be sitting there right now waiting for scholars to go find them. So. That revolution really created this field of study called American metaphysical religion, which the the argument is basically this around it. Is American metaphysical religion anything? Is it just an umbrella term to cover a bunch of weird superstitious activities that people engage in from different cultures? And how dare us try to lump it all together into something when it's obviously just disconnected bricolage, right? They even coined the term "Sheilaism" about this in the mid-century, uh, last century, because they felt that this was uh, something that was going to be terrible for America and for the world. People going out there and just taking little bits of any religion they wanted and turning it into their own individual religion, they predicted, would create a world of isolation without civic commitment. And I think we can see that that did not happen, really. People have done this, and and I'm sure you know, as I know, people who have taken pieces of various religions and created a wonderful path and found other people that they could resonate with. And so something else is happening. It's it's not quite as simple as, uh, no, these are just amateurs who are grabbing things they don't understand to make themselves feel better. There is some kind of, a, as you say, alchemical transmutation going on in this country where, where all these different pieces are sort of boiling together into something else. And so, mm-hmm. and so the question becomes: Will it turn into something? Is it already something? So, is American metaphysical religion an actual religion where we may all have different practices, but we're basically doing the same things? Mm-hmm. You may use the I Ching, I may use the Tarot, somebody else may use runes, but we're we're, we're we have more in common with each other than we do with mainstream religion and basically we would recognize in each other ourselves. And so in that case, we have a huge religion we're talking millions and millions of people that doesn't have self-awareness. Now, maybe that's a blessing because without self-awareness, you don't have hierarchies, institutions, exploitation, and all the things that happen when you get an institutionalized spiritual path. And so, others argue that there's a possibility that that this is evolving into a new religion and so albanese for example just released a book a couple weeks before mine that i can't wait to read but i haven't had a chance yet that's about the pursuit of happiness in anglo-american metaphysical religion and she's if i understand correctly she's arguing that the, the pursuit of happiness has, in a sense, become a whole new approach to religion. Because if you look at, at Buddhism, if you look at patriarchal uh, religion monotheisms, in general, the world is seen as a, as a battle. As, as You have to fight against worldliness. It's a place of suffering. And it, this American religion is about the pursuit of happiness. We should be happy in nature. And I always look at this and think, wow, it's I, I I have in my book some of these people who when they first came to America, there were some people sophisticated enough to look at the natives and say, say, wow, these indigenous people are living better lives than we are. They're healthier than we are They're, They They don't have to have walls and guns and they, they get along better. Their wars aren't nearly as cruel or bloody. And who are we to say that we're actually living better lives? Maybe we can learn something from them. They even grow better food than we do. And so that idea, I mean, it's possible you've seen in history that, uh, for example, when the Aryans swept down into India and they eventually wind up practicing the religion of those they conquered. If you look at what happened in Rome, they conquered Greece and, and, and Greece takes over Roman culture. And so it could be that we're on a path here where all these different religions that have flown into America or streamed into America will combine into something that that perhaps gets a big part of its personality from indigenous spirituality and the need to respect nature and to and to conserve it and to live in harmony with it. So it, it could it could be that this will turn out to be an organized religion of some kind. It could be, uh, again that it's it's already a religion but it doesn't know it is and and then there's the idea that it really isn't anything it's just a bunch of crazy superstitions and that we're giving it this label for convenience sake
0: history and that nowadays is subjective we have a lot of people we have a lot of conflicting thoughts even within the community this happened this didn't happen we know that history's I call it a cosmic game of telephone where there are probably dates, times, and things that happen that maybe didn't happen as they say they did. That's a given, right? Because since the beginning of time, man's not going to remember everything. And usually the people who win are the ones that write the victory, the the victory to the victor, the spoils, right? But those are the ones that actually write the history and they usually burn down, the last guy's stuff or I mean we see what the Egyptians they scribble on their name onto that monument etc cetera, etc cetera. and you mentioned something that that has always resonated with me where we all have and I've said that we all always have and always have had the pieces of the puzzle but they're just jumbled up and we see this with syncretism with different gods we know that The gods were the same, just the same entity, deity, just under different names. We know that. We can trace that all throughout since the beginning of time, since Mesopotamia. I mean, that's where they say it started, right? (laughs) And we see the evolution of the gods, and then you have multiple deities form into one deity, etc., etc. And it is funny, right, that it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful country you live in because maybe the people running it, aren't the best, but we are more blessed than any other country where we are able to practice our religion of choice, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, whatever it is. And I think a lot of people take that for granted because in some countries you're literally killed. I mean, to, to express yourself religiously in whichever way you want. Right. So by Us being able to express ourselves in whichever way we want. Yeah, I I do think that something has risen. But one of my questions to you was going to be, where do you see this in 100 years? Because a lot of people still believe that (laughs) we're a Christian country. And I think that my personal opinion is that that's a facade that they put up to bring people in, to to real people in, right? And God we trust. I mean, a lot of those guys, a lot of the founding fathers... We're probably part of, and again, nothing against people in occult circles, but they're probably in secret societies and initiates. What are, What are your thoughts on that? And where do you see this in a hundred years? Are we still going to have Christianity as we know it today, or all these other major world religions, or will we be worshiping something else? Or is it going to be? Will the world end before then? What, what are your What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think. I think we can see Christianity changing in America already. And so, for instance, in my book, I argue that, that American Christianity resembles American metaphysical religion more than it resembles traditional Christianity. And what I mean by that is in traditional Christianity, we have the idea that we life is suffering. You're very likely damned. The only way you're not going to be damned is if you are given grace. And so you must behave in a way that you won't ruin that and don't expect to be happy here. And the rich man doesn't get into heaven and turn the other cheek when there's violence. Now, needless to say, we, we haven't seen a whole lot of that in European Christianity or Christianity anywhere. But in America, this has really evolved in a a strange direction because you have the prosperity gospel. You have people who are saying, well, the reason you're poor is because you're not in good with the church. You know, God, if you were in good with God, you'd, you'd have everything you need. Well, what does that suggest to you that? Well, we're supposed to be happy. God wants you to be happy. And not only that, God wants you to be in control down here. And that is not traditional Christianity. Uh, God wants you to pick up a gun and defend yourself in case the government comes after you. God wants you to um, dominate politics instead of rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's. Those are, these are different concepts from what Christianity was originally intended to be. Turn the other cheek is not visible in a lot of Christians religion in America. There's a lot of violence associated with it and pressure and domination. And it's, it's, It's really quite a different animal. And so my feeling is that that if we look at American Christianity, we can see, I mean, look at Mormonism, which is essentially, it's almost an occult religion in itself, and and see how America has already changed this tradition to resemble its own preoccupations more than the heritage of Christianity. So I think that it will continue to do that. And, And then now we have this huge upswell of interest in the esoteric that is something we haven't seen since the new age and augmented by social media is really something brand new so we have we have people such as yourself and and others who are getting online and sharing what they're discovering and and there's a healthy disrespect for for traditions and elders and the ideas of secrecy and and there's a desire to to, sh- to really know what's up and, and share it with each other. That's pretty exciting and, and different. And I can tell you, just seeing, I mean, I find it as somebody that was involved in Riot Girl, for example, and if your listeners don't know what Riot Girl was, it was a subdivision of punk rock that was run by women. It was a kind of a DIY movement and, and very much about claiming not just equality, but also doing art around the reality of what it was like to be female and so a lot of the art deals with abuse and rape and trauma and and injustice and discrimination very incredible i I went there after working with manly hall and i have to say in in many ways it was as enlightening as being at prs and completely changed my world Uh, to see to hear and see and read what women were really going through and what what it was like out there was a real life changer and changed how I did many things in my life. And so I think that, that this, this idea of, of how now we have, we have young witches, for example, who are out there and are teaching and are learning and writing and sharing their information. And there's no fear or hesitation of doing so. they in fact, they're, they're proud to claim the title. And, and this is a little different. I mean, there were times earlier in, in our history where not, not in the early days, but say starting in the sixties or so, particularly where the, the idea of being a witch is, is held up as a powerful feminine archetype, female archetype. And, and there are people who are identifying themselves this way and going out there and establishing lineages, but not like today not where individuals can do this and share with each other and, and where it, it's not a, a shameful thing. Now, that's in certain circles, of course. Now, if you were to declare yourself a witch in the middle of Oklahoma, you're, you're going to have a different experience than if you do that in California. But nevertheless, it's never been this acceptable. And, and also, I think, understood at such a depth because the women who are doing this, the, the young women who are doing this, They know what they're doing is is also feminist. They know that they're not just teaching a spiritual path, that they are also, in a sense, continuing the tradition of, of, let's call it, riot girl, of the girls that came before them who tried to use art and self-expression to let the world know what was going on and change the way things are done. So I think there's a lot of change that's going to come from that. And I think just the, the influx of women into society that has occurred over the last couple of generations is a huge factor in changing the way society works. You, you see how most of these patriarchal traditions try to keep women down. And, and so here we have a tradition that's doing quite the opposite and is, is trying to embrace feminine spirituality. And so now how, where does it go? I think that, I mean, 100 years, given the way technology is exploding at this time, I have to say, I really have no idea what it looks like in terms of technology, because we're on the verge right now. I I think the next 20 years are going to make what's happened in the last 20 years look like almost like nothing. And how are we going to adapt to all this new technology, the AI and the robotics and Neuralink and all these things that are just, just completely going to change how we experience life? And, and where does spirituality fit into that? So for example, Mary Kay Greer posted something interesting today where she said, are we even going to need mediums to contact our dead relatives because can't I just feed a bunch of information about my dead relative to AI and then talk to my dead relative? So that's a great question and a great observation. That, that remains to be seen. And also, we're still at an inflection point in terms of generations that have grown up in in the computer world so uh someone like me you know i go all the way back to prodigy and and i i embraced it immediately when i saw it i loved it and i saw it turn into what it is today and and but i didn't grow up on it i you know when i was at prs in the 1980s there was no internet I mean, there was an internet but there was no access for any of us on it and so things like rare books or, or just so hard to find things. I mean, I can't tell you how many times now the difference is amazing. I used to have to, to drive to libraries and, and contact, you know, pick up the phone and call up, do you have this book in your library and have to go get it. And now I can go online and find books that were so incredibly rare. Things that, that are in a lot of Manly Hall's vault is now online thanks to the Getty. The, the, the manuscripts that I looked at with him, you can now go look at. I think that's really exciting and a real game changer for the future. So I'm actually optimistic. I, I think things are gonna be better. I think that the generations that are coming up now uh, will, be, will prove to find, I think they're gonna find more interest in the esoteric side than in the traditional side. And I think you can already see that happening. And, and you can see it also in a trend where parents, for example, are much less likely now to say, listen, you were born in this religion and you're going to be in this religion. Most of the parents today went through that and they didn't like it. And so they're telling their kids, you don't have to do that. You can, you can go out there and find what you like. And so I often hear from friends who have kids, Hey, my kid just discovered Buddhism today. And so we had a big talk about Buddhism and, I think he's going to be Buddhist for a week. And then they try something else. And see, I like that. I think that that's a wonderful approach. And one of the things that was great about being at PRS was, thanks to Manly Hall's incredible breadth of interests, I got exposed to every religion, all kinds of art, every culture. And I I find that I, I couldn't live without that now. I, it's like having air to breathe. And I think that the more people discover that, the better for everybody so that we can embrace different spiritual traditions or different parts of spiritual traditions at different times in our lives. And I still think there will be people who practice the traditional purist religions and then inherit them because those are also very powerful paths. And and I think it's a little bit like jazz at some point. It will be, be oh, I'm a purist, man. My parents were Christian. I'm a Christian. I love the purity of Christianity, but it won't be you're wrong. I'm right. And I'm, those kind, that kind of certainty thing, I think, is slowly being being rubbed off of us by social media, and so all the, the, the we encounter all these opinions and counter opinions, and and we learn eventually to respect that that there are these other points of view. I like to use the example that uh, Robert Anton Wilson gave of reality tunnels, and so all of these different paths are are different reality tunnels and, and we all inhabit different reality tunnels at different times of our lives. So why shouldn't our spirituality reflect that? And finally, Emerson and the transcendentalists in in this so typically American way, such incredible hubris on a level, but so wonderful. uh, Emerson with his statement, why should we have to follow other religions why can't we have a direct revelation of the divine? Aren't we as good as our ancestors were? I mean, don't we deserve to see not through their eyes, but through our own, the divine? And this relates all the way back to Shingon Buddhism, which uh, the, the founder, Kukai, had a great saying. I, I don't remember it exactly, but essentially what he says is, don't try to, don't, don't try to do what the masters did. Seek what they sought. we each have to find it in our own way in our own lives and so i think there's too much fetishizing right and wrong and and this is the way it's done and yes there are certainly better and and worse ways of doing things but once you take into into consideration the context that each human being brings to the table for spiritual experience you can be a lot more open-minded and so rather than feeling threatened by all the different spiritual paths, you can feel how great that is. Instead of saying, well, these are just people making things up and just whatever they want to believe, you can say, well, is it possible that divine can reach to people in ways that make sense to them? And and I know people, and I certainly have experienced myself, I mean, being raised atheist and being very bitter and, and angry about everything, when I stumbled across a path that that made sense to me or a symbol of deity that made sense to me. It awakened in me things that I had never been able to feel before. I write about that in my book about uh, an ancient Egyptian goddess named Sekhmet that is getting really popular now. And people are having these revelatory experiences. Uh, There's actually been academic papers written about uh, the way that, that people have walked into museums and they see the statue and they don't even know what this is. And they wind up falling on their knees and crying or, or just overwhelmed in in the presence. And it's turning for those people, the museum into a kind of sacred temple. And so this revival of this ancient Egyptian religion, which brings up all kinds of anxiety provoking ideas amongst the cultists and traditionalists alike, is, however, catching the hearts of many people who otherwise didn't feel any sense of, you know, they would look at Christianity or whatever they were born into and go, I don't feel this. And then they might hear about other things and say, yeah, it's nice, but that's, and then all of a sudden they run across this lion-headed Egyptian goddess and they say, oh my, that's exciting to me. I mean, I think that's how it should be, that, that we should all be, we, we sojourn down here, let the gods find us as they will.
0: Mm-hmm. Being born and raised Pentecostal Christian, I was always taught to anything not of the church, satanic. And I think I heard you say in in, an interview, one man's devils, another man's God or something like that, where I, and I always said this too. I said, I'm going to hell in somebody else's religion and they're going to hell in mine. So who, why is mine the right one now? not to because I have kids and I'm I, I believe that a a religion serves as a foundation some people need guidance in this life some people need to be told what to do unfortunately now that's not always a bad thing but there are people who need guidance. And if yes. the church, whatever that, it, whatever, because it, it, the beautiful thing, it's, it's gnosis. It's whatever sacred knowledge exactly. to you. It's your experience. The only real thing is the experience, regardless of the fact. And we get into phenomenology and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. But the experience itself is what's real. Now, you practice whatever you want to practice. If you want to worship Cthulhu, whatever it is, as long as I always say, whatever happens between two consenting adults, so be it. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I don't like and what I don't subscribe to anymore is the dogmatic views of the church and and the hostility really towards if you're not with me, you're against me. And that's what I've eliminated. But I'm going to pass it down to my children, the foundation that I was given. And if they get to my age and they start questioning things how I have, because I was told not to read the book of Enoch, not to read the Dead Sea Scrolls, not to read anything on the Nag Hammadi library because you start to really see the unfiltered scripture or text mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then when you come across something like the Gospel of Judas and you're like yeah he's the good guy in the story like that's yeah. always blow my yeah. mind <laughs> when you bring it up to somebody it's blasphemy and I saw your book yeah. was what number one in blasphemy or something? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah they can't even come to terms within themselves there's what 40 something thousand denominations of Christianity and you expect me to navigate this space and find the one like no it you know have a set of beliefs have a set of beliefs and if it aligns to you but the problem with the church is it's a brokered experience you can only achieve divinity through us yeah right and I've always learned that there's a there's a pattern in history that usually the people who go against the mainstream narrative doesn't end well for them, right? Look at the Gnostics. It does, didn't end well for those guys, and they were the underground. They were the ones. They were the rebels. They were these yeah. movements, right? That you're talking about for the people, and they want to do their own thing, and they were they were stomped out. <laughs> it, yeah. didn't, it didn't end well for them, so. I think that this this is a very interesting topic. And I and I I'll be honest, I did not know that there was such a thing until I came across yeah. the book and I finally got it. I was like, wow, okay, this is something that's That's
1: why that's part of why I wrote it, because I, I wanted people like us to be able to to have access to this information that was even though it was published, it was hidden in these expensive, obscure mm-hmm. academic books and in, in college libraries and no one except academics knew that we were getting brand new visions of a lot of our most important uh, heroes and themes and so that was a big actually that's that's a big reason why I've written all the things I've written because uh, I have another book coming out in August that I wrote with Tamara about uh, the orphic tradition and then of course the rosicrucian one so i think that there's a a a sense that of reinvention in the air but there's also a sense of fear and reactionary uh, desire to control. And so on the one hand, we've got this eagerness to explore all the new information and, and to find your own path. And on the other, we have a desire to squelch it and to establish a theocracy in this country. And that is, is, the, is the literal per- political goal of, a, of the dominionist section of the politics of Christianity in America to reestablish Christian domination or what they call dominion in the United States. And that's a very serious goal for the next election. And they have a a kind of Supreme court now that may have more to do with that side of things than it does with, with our viewpoints. Yep. Oh, that's great! I haven't seen that before. <laughs> yeah, that's it, really cool.
0: It was a custom. I like that. You thought it was something else, didn't you? You
1: saw uh, for a second. But <laughs> see, I have. I actually have like some weird Trump stuff in our <laughs> rehearsal room because we would do satirical songs and videos about him. You know, so when I see people with it, I don't. I don't always assume. Oh. Um, so this is. I don't think it's going to work. Uh, even speaking astrologically, we're leaving Pluto and Capricorn right now. Uh, Pluto has been in Capricorn since 2008. Uh, You know what happened then with the financial crash. Everything we're experiencing, plague, financial crash, weather disasters. Every time Pluto goes into Capricorn, this stuff is going on. Mm. We also have the U.S. Pluto return ongoing. And it's very similar to what happened during Rome's first Pluto return. Same thing, economic problems with distribution, plague, breakdowns of institutions and belief systems and so we're just a where is it now march 23rd i think pluto enters aquarius for three months and then goes back to capricorn and then enters aquarius for 20 years in history pluto and aquarius has been connected to the american revolution the french revolution uh big populist movements for liberation And I don't see the possibility of establishing uh, dictatorial autocracies during Pluto and Aquarius. If they attempt to, there will be massive social unrest and uprising against it, because that's just what Aquarius, that's what Pluto and Aquarius does. So my feeling is that that we have a particularly dark perspective right now, having sojourned through all of this Pluto and Capricorn time with Neptune in Pisces. This is the end of a big, long cycle. A lot of looking back, a lot of feelings of exhaustion and endings. And it's all going to change in the next few years. Uh, By 26, Pluto goes into Aries, starting a whole new, very different cycle. Last time that happened was the American Civil War. And we have uh, Saturn is about to leave aquarius for pisces ending its cycle and beginning a new one about the same time that neptune shifts over and we've got pluto entering aquarius we'll get a taste of it this spring and i think it'll be a lot different i think that things are going to kind of uh, blossom up somewhat and uh i think there's going to be there's a lot of pent-up energy that was caused by and and i think it's still there even though We're we're taking the tack. We sort of decided as society that, okay, this thing is over and now everything's back to normal. It really isn't back to normal. There's still a lot of feelings of fear out there and people aren't sure what safe means anymore, but we will reach a point where we will feel safe again. And I would suggest that Pluto and Aquarius staying true to its historical manifestations will be bringing around a lot of medical breakthroughs uh, big cures. I, I actually think they may go a long way toward curing cancer in the next twenty years with this aspect. And it will surprise us, I think, how much things are are changing on that medical frontier. And so I think they may come up with something like a more traditional vaccine where it does stop it from spreading or or something will happen that makes us feel like, "Oh, wow, okay. And when that happens, I think there's going to be such a huge blossoming of energy and artistic creativity and people are going to want to run out there and be together and share music and do all kinds of things. So I think that that's that's probably ahead too. And I also think that we've been in a, the 20th century has kind of had a stranglehold so far on the 21st. We do have a lot of developments in the arts and such in the 21st century, but if you think about it, music styles, I mean, so many things are still kind of the way they were. And a lot of the icons that, that are still held up on, in, in some degree are, are, are people who are you know really from another era. And although we have examples of people who've, who've kind of busted out in, in, the, in the new generations, I don't think it's happened even a fraction of how it's going to. And I think we'll see in the next two, three, four years as many of the icons of the older generations begin to die out, a big shift in terms of, of what culture feels like, what music is doing, what, what the goals are in all these places. And it's already happened. I mean, when you look at why did Riot Girl happen in the 90s, you know, look at what was going on in the 60s, 70s and 80s with women in music. I mean, they, basically, it was, you know, can we find 14-year-olds and do whatever we want to them? I mean, that, that was the music business for 30 years, and nobody said anything about it. It was like this secret, this is why we're really doing it, you know, wink, wink. And now, these guys, I mean, Steven Tyler just got in trouble because he tried to marry a 14-year-old or whatever she was, 16-year-old back in the day, and she's suing him now for the damage that she did to his life. And rather than he did to her life, and so he's faced with this—this this, something I did back in the seventies is now suddenly being judged as as something very wrong and illegal, and it was illegal at the time, but everybody looked the other way. Now look at the change in culture there in the nineties when Riot Girl came along. People hated them. They were like, "What do you don't spoil the party? What are you guys doing?" Everybody hates. You know what? You're you're a bunch of ugly girls, and that's why you're angry. Was the kind of thing that you would hear all the time. And now the world has really come around and it's not okay anymore to 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 build a business on the backs of kids. So that's a big development. Oh, and I think there will be more such developments of a more evolved point of view and, and more interest in equality, more power for women, uh, more interest in new forms of creativity. And I think that's going to be very exciting. So I do think we're in for a bumpy ride. I, I think that the other side is 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 also very motivated and and they feel that they they are in the right, and that tends to give a certain force to one's activities, whereas people like ourselves are are much more open-minded and we're not more likely to be banging people on the head where this is the only way or else. we're We're just we want to share ideas. But in the long run, I think this approach. And the alchemy that you and the other podcasters are performing, as you pointed out, is one-in-one one way where people hear a little something. You might hear, often I find that when I do uh, interviews, somebody will, well, just one thing I said, they'll contact me and say, wow, I never thought of that, and it really changed the way I was looking at things. That kind of change, that's not happening in the Christian world. Okay? They're, they're, not, they're not going out there and, and opening minds they're going out there and creating communities that are conformist and they're self-policing and that want to police society. And I don't think most people want that. And so my hope is that, that, that all this American metaphysical religion stuff, all these esoteric activities are going to help to unleash a, a much more um, cosmopolitan atmosphere. And in fact, the funny thing is that, you know, I don't know you're probably aware of this. And back in the day, they used to call alchemists cosmopolitans because they were constantly traveling city to city mm-hmm. because they were often thrown out. And so it kind of fits in there. And I, and I think of it as a cosmopolitan also goes with Alexandria, uh, ancient Alexandria with Neoplatonism and Rome and and that kind of, of society even though it's, it often doesn't last, is a beautiful time to be alive because of the ideas and the art and things are created that can influence people for centuries.
0: According to my astrologer, she did a birth chart reading on me and she says I have the Birth chart of an alchemist. So I don't know what that means. I do know I'm not. I'll be honest with you, Ronnie. I don't know a lot about astrology or anything of that. But I have a, a grand trine or something like that Very in nice. my in my chart. Yeah. And I don't know how to harness any of that. But I do have the birth. Tra- I, I take pride in that by knowing that I have the birth chart of an alchemist. The man. The man of mysteries. The hierophant. Right. I, I dive deep and I do research and I like talking about these esoteric and occult subjects and and ronnie i I could listen to you talk all day man you really carry yourself nicely and do you have any i know you talked about the future there when can we expect to see more from you do you know i know you mentioned about i'd be really interested to hear the the lectures that you gave that are recorded do you have any idea when you'll be putting that out
1: As soon as I can get around to it, I've got them all prepped. A friend of mine engineered them and uh, they will be coming out, but I just have not been able to get to it. So, but hopefully this year for sure.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And and hopefully, when your next book comes out, I can have you back on and we can talk some more. I'd be happy to. I really enjoyed this. And you just, I I know you've got a a wealth of of knowledge. And I wanted to talk about John D and some other stuff because I actually received, let me see if I can hold it up because I, I don't know if you've heard about this guy, but I know you talked You said John D. Well, I got this set. It's the the complete mystical records Ooh, of Doctor John D. Nice. I'd never seen this guy before, Kevin Klein. Now, yeah, I got it because obviously it's not available electronically, right? So, and I am a fan of John D. and I've studied John D. quite a bit. So, of course, I had to pick this up, and I got it this week. So, yeah, I mean, again, talk about it. Right? You have Rudolph the Second. I know you were talking about this other guy being eccentric. Well, Rudolph the Second was pretty, pretty eccentric, and he was a weird guy. Oh but... yeah,
1: I love him. He was a fascinating character. Yeah, maybe we can when talk about, about his. You heard about his door knocker, his secret door knocker?
0: No. Okay,
1: well, I'll tell you that off air.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> talking about little people, he had a like an army of yeah of. Little people, midgets, whatever. He thought they were magical. And just again, I don't know. Now, did Manly P. Hall have a little magical homunculus running around? I mean,
1: (laughs) you know, I didn't know him. That's a funny thing. I mean, I I didn't know him for most of his life. So I met this mellowed 80 year old Manly Hall who was kind of a down home cracker barrel philosopher, and he was wonderful, Uh, but not the Manly Hall of of the early days. I mean, just look at those pictures of
0: him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those, those eyes, right? Those, those, the... yeah. well, Ronnie, we're going to go ahead and sign off because we're up on time, but people can find the book. I got mine on, I think from directly from inner traditions, but you can find it really, I think on Amazon or anywhere else. If you can shop locally, help out a yeah, local please. shop and beautiful cover awesome book a lot of content in here a lot of material and hopefully we'll have you on again in the future to talk some more i really enjoyed this
1: yeah likewise thank you ronnie thank you